Hello and welcome to the Chris Knott Podcast, the podcast dedicated to making you more confident with your biomechanical terminology and assessments that will help you with your clients on the gym floor. How's that for an intro? I really uh, put a lot of effort into that thinking about it. So uh, episode number eight, uh, 184 today, I'm um, just going to do case studies, um, catching up on things in terms of where we're up to. Um, it's been very, very busy at the moment, but in a good way, um, just cracking on with a lot of projects, which I'm very, very excited to be releasing, um, taking my time with it, but you know, um, good things come to those who wait. So uh, I'll be wait. I'll be releasing more information in the not too distant future about uh, new APX stuff uh, which is coming in the new year but I uh, just wanted to do a summary of a podcast which is really just focusing on three case studies for the week uh, coming in different shapes and sizes and just the different considerations that you'd want to be making for uh, different people um, the idea behind it is that you know you can cherry pick the episodes and you can find a client who fits the cer- a certain avatar and then you can focus on how to um, use the information to help them with their sessions and give them a better idea of what they should be doing. Uh, today we're going to be looking at neck pain, we're going to be looking at uh, lower back pain and we're going to be looking at plantar fasciitis um, but it's not just those from a binary sense as in like this is what to do in every circumstances I'm going to be going into the individual and explaining what the considerations are um, when it comes to uh, these type of things. So I'm going to start off with the neck pain. Obviously, I'm not going to use a client's um, you know, identity. I'm not going to give you anything about them, but I will give you uh, certain features, like physical features they have, which is going to impact the way uh, things come into play with this. Um, now, the client who came in with neck pain or client slash patient, well, it's both. So it was a, a client who I train who came in with neck pain to the point where they were unable to train. So instead, we did a treatment session as well. Um, now, this female is, is tall. Um, so if uh, but height is about 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, um, and in, as this is the case, you've got to really appreciate the differing in mechanics and what's going on. Now, um, I think the stuff that I observe is is probably, I wouldn't say it's, it's revolutionary, it's definitely not, but it's more observations that we kind of sweep under the rug and it's factors that play a huge role on, on the way people um, on the way people move and the things that, that can um, impact the quality of training and the length of someone's neck is is 100% a factor um, because if someone has a long neck and a big skull um, you know their their um, you know cervical or you know basically their neck muscles um, have to work a lot harder you know and they they have a greater leverage or they have to work to uh, to stabilize and this is people who can become susceptible to um, Become susceptible to pain and, and restrictions around the uh, sub-obsitables. Uh, Can't even say obsit. That's now you say occipital. Back of the head is what I'm trying to say, but the sub-occipitals um, is basically the region um, where they'll they'll uh, be um, experiencing quite a lot of tension and tension headaches. So basically, um, the, the considerations that you've got to make for this person is um, first of all looking at what you can do for them externally, and then secondly looking at how you've um, properly. Um, how you've properly um, designed the exercises in the in the program for them because certain factors are, are going to come into play so for example 
you know with this it's always about using common sense and observation it's not like you're ever going to measure someone's neck and and say it to them right just stand there while i get my tape measure out it's never that it's just you know looking at these different considerations and what could be happening with somebody and just noticing the way they stand the way they present themselves but you say you have someone who is taller and people who are taller generally speaking may have a longer neck or uh, in relation to the rest of the body is that whenever you're doing an exercise where they are pressing or they're laid down uh, naturally if they're looking forward or placing their eyes or gazing down the body to see where their hands are they're essentially going to be using a lot of the neck flexors and this is a really really common thing for people to do now if you accompany this with what is the person doing most of the time such as being at a desk those neck flexors are going to be held in a contracted position now due to gravity they're not actually being contracted to holders in that position because it's the extensors on the other side which are working to pull the head backwards so even though we're flexed forward and um, we're hunched over at a desk looking at a screen it's actually the extensor muscles that are going to be under strain because they're holding the posture the flexor muscles are just going to be held in a shortened position so that means they don't know or they won't recognize the ability to lengthen now if somebody's lay on their back and they have a particularly long neck then muscles like the uh, sternocleidomastoid um, and the scalenes are going to be very very uh, are going to be working to basically hold that sustained position then if you add to it that they have not faulty but their breathing mechanics are a little bit um, leave a little bit to be desired for because stress is high and they don't know how to diaphragmatically breathe this can cause issues where everything just becomes very very restricted now the scm and the scalenes they attach to the um to the clavicle and the uh, the ribs the first and second rib and as a byproduct um they're going to in some way and i wouldn't say it directly impacts scapular movement but it it definitely does uh, because the clavicle is attached to the uh, chromium and therefore if the if the clavicle can't move or internally externally rotate very subtly we may say adaptations in around the scapula but really if we're looking at it from a holistic point of view if we really really increase the tension in those neck flexors it's just going to compress and contract around the um uh, around the uh, uh the shoulder area so then clavicle which then goes into the scapula and as a byproduct we have a, redu- a reduction in total movement now it's very very common for women to increase gh range and what that basically means is is when you hold their arm and you check their internal and external rotation below 90 degrees of abduction it feels like a knife going through butter where there's virtually no resistance but whereas you when you take them into abduction and then require more scapular movement they then basically lose it and they have either external or internal gets lost because of the fact that the scapula doesn't move so if we look at scapular humeral rhythm and what's needed is that they they compensate for the lack of scapular movement by increasing gh range so glenal humeral uh, um, range and this is where a lot of females will say like i get clicky shoulders or i'll get crunch- crunching in my shoulders when i do some form of like shoulder articulation now if you if you add on to this bread, uh, breast tissue which is a definitely a factor and or breastfeeding uh, children being in that position and holding the weight in front of them either from the breast tissue or holding the child there is going to increase the amount of flexion in the upper back so really what we've got is when we have increased the rigidity in the mid thoracics and, and uh, that region there is that we've just got all this recipe with the tightened neck and the restricted breathing and the restricted clavicular motions um, for, for the scapulas not to move very well 
Now, the factors that you've got to consider here is if the scapula can't move well and they can't rotate around the spine, what are pressing movements doing? So your the typical shoulder presses, chest presses, and um, uh, and and rowing movements. Now, if somebody is tall, such as the the client in question that I was speaking here, and they have very long um, humerus, a very long upper arm, very long forearm the dumbbells and weights that they'll be doing are going to be a lot heavier based on the distance from the shoulder to the implement which is the weight so therefore this is going to be uh, this is going to mean these exercises are extremely challenging and it doesn't mean that they they shouldn't do this so it's, it's by by no means should they avoid doing the um, the exercise it's purely we've just got to understand what the prerequisites are to actually target the muscles we want because remember if the scapula don't move but the gh capsule uh, gains in range and we're doing a dumbbell movement which has a very which has a um, a profile which is consistent with gravity is that really what we're doing when we're doing something like a flat press or a dumbbell press as we get heavier and heavier is just increasing the strain on the anterior parts of the anterior capsule of the shoulder so this basically means is we need to be very very um, deliberate in our in our periodization and work on one thing consistently which is going to be a thoracic rotation now when we look at this holistically thoracic rotation is going to massively rely on the on the glutes as well so the, the lateral glutes um, as well as the glute max so these are very very important factors that need to be uh, worked into somebody's program especially a female and especially for the one in question so when we look at this uh, holistic picture of what do I do it's like well if I am going to get this person to press I need to ex- I need to set up the exercise so that I've got um, so the neck is um, not protected but basically supported so the use of a pillow or the use of a, um, a, a yoga block or the use of some form of pad so that they're not in uh, they're not holding themselves um, they're not having to use the neck flexors excessively and then I need to think about well if I'm getting this person to do a bilateral row or press am I actually targeting the lats and pecs or I'm actually just taking their shoulder through a greater range of motion in the capsule uh, and, and training passive tissue so that's another consideration with that so when it came for the headaches or the reason for, for the headaches with this individual it was because the tension in the upper traps was so so high and was uh, was so increased that this was impacting the way the scapula moved and the muscles that attach to the cervical spine so that's levator scapula, splenus capitis and so forth which act on the um, scapula as well uh, basically were held in them in this upward elevation upward rotation so what this basically means is is that this person would massively benefit from actually training the traps themselves so training the traps not heavy not doing the typical like snatch grip barbell shrugs or anything like that but just some gentle shoulder articulation just so the brain knows how to work eccentrically if you can get these traps to work eccentrically and um, mix that with the breathing so co-coordinate that with breathing mechanics um, you're on for a winner when it comes to um, when it comes to um, improving or targeting somebody who has headaches so uh, moving on, we'll move on to a male client and um, so a male case study. This one's going to be coming in with uh, lower back pain, um, and the lower back pain was coming from just a unaccustomed movement or unaccustomed activity, which basically means they were doing some gardening, mowing the lawn, doing some housework and uh, some house renovations. And um, what was happening with this person is they um, were 
moving about that sorry i'll give you a little bit of a background he's a very very strong power lifter um like 250 plus deadlift and um also doing recreational jiu-jitsu and the person um moved and they they've twinged their back and it's very very um become very very painful for them um so the assessment really is that this person presented with what i would say is classic pelvic obliquity which is when i put them into that um 90 degrees of hip flexion to look at uh, hip rotation mechanics is that there was a difference in internal external rotation from right to left where the left was um the, the left had lost um external rotation and the right had lost internal rotation and this is essentially when we look at this meaning that there's obviously differing mechanics from side to side and to be honest this is what you'll see in about 90 percent of the people who come through the door especially ones who weight train now it's very important to go into this person's case history because in his case history he'd had a left acl tear now the left acl tear had impacted the knee mechanics and there'd been adaptations in order to make sure that that wasn't encountered again but the hyperextension of the knee to protect the acl tear or the way the person was presenting had then caused compression at the back and the hip rotators um, on the uh, on the left hand side as a byproduct they were unable to uh, properly go through the full range of motion in external rotation um, at 90 degrees of hip flexion so what happened with this person is that what this shows is and this is i want to break this down so it becomes very very simple is that if you have a difference in hip rotation from one side to the other we can hypothesize that the muscles and or fascia that attach to the sacrum have uh, different levels of pull and different levels of mechanical advantage so you know the, these things that i'm saying are my opinion and i really want to stress that because um when you speak to therapists and when you speak to a lot of people a lot of different people they're going to have differences of opinion which means that some might be saying it's more joints some might be more muscle some might be more fascial this is just the way i see things now but if somebody has differing mechanics from side to side as in the range of motions different it means that in my opinion their fascial tissues have molded in a way which isn't bilateral if something isn't bilateral when we do a bilateral exercise such as a squat or a deadlift we may run into the um, problem of uh, of contorting the body so basically twisting it if the hip rotators so let's just if we were to put a muscle on it and say the piriformis isn't even in terms of its ability to contract from side to side so one side is tighter one side is uh, looser um to put it simply that means that the sacrum is then technically going to be twisted. If the sacrum is going to be twisted, then it's going to correct itself further up the line in L4, L5 and so forth. Uh, and then as a byproduct, the lumbar has got to accommodate. And then you'll go throughout the body and create this functional scoliosis by default. Now, addressing this is very, very multifaceted and we couldn't go into everything um, when it came uh, when it came to this, um, you know, we go, don't go down the rabbit hole with it because it is down to foot mechanics, it's down to... Uh, um, it's down to you know hip mechanics breathing mechanics also torso mechanics but what happened with this individual the main thing was is that his glute med on the problematic side or, or the most restricted side which was the left um, wasn't firing now this is where context comes into play and the reason why i wanted to use this case study is because with this individual is that you're dealing with someone whose nervous system is used to working with 250 kilos so if i was to do something where where he's doing a um when it comes to his exercise selection it's very very important that it fits the bill in regards to um 
what will make a big difference for his uh, for, for, uh, to his physique because if we're doing very very low level intensity stuff which isn't significant enough it may get him out of pain but is it going to be enough to help him when he's getting into that powerlifting position and lifting hundreds of kilos so this is an example where it's not necessarily exercise setup but this person needs to create equal intensity uh, exercises which are able to um, to target the glute med now what they could do is um, is go and use a cable machine they could align a cable very very uh, astutely and, and align the cable so it goes through the line of fibers with the glute med however this then causes an issue with the fact that as they get stronger and stronger and go further down the stack they'll have to um, they'll have to support their body in um, in a very uh, what is a challenging manner so let's think of that if you're doing a cable kickback if you're using about 20 kilos or 15 20 kilos then if you're a 100 kilo power lifter then you um, the weight that you're displacing isn't that great in relation to your body so you, you basically um, you'll be able to do the exercise with a good level of stability however to equate the amount of load you'll need to get a significant stimulus you'll need to go further and further down the rack as you go further down the rack if you can imagine this doing a cable kickback with the um doing a cable kickback with the um uh, with like 50 kilos is just basically going to be a single leg exercise for the opponent leg or you'll be wobbling or it becomes a you know a full body sensation and you've got to think about it that basically as that weight goes up the accuracy in which you can get the um, uh, get the stimulus into the um, uh, glute med is going to be uh, is going to be reduced so with the person in question it's more about repatterning and using soft tissue so that his assistance work and so that his actual power lifts enable him to recruit that muscle so this is where doing regular myofascial and soft tissue work so that he can actually get into the position and utilize the glute med and have that body awareness of it when lifting is your best bet. So in other words, you need to retrain the body and, re- and uh, readjust the um, soft tissue systems and the soft tissue structures so that he can actually fully utilize this muscle, understand how it works, assist it in externally rotating the femur um, when in that deadlift position, and this will give him a better chance of stabilizing the sacrum and then not encountering these lower back issues of course that is just one element to it but that's where you'd start and the reason being is that it's it's getting you thinking that if this was a you know maybe 60 year old woman who just needed a small stimulus so she could go and walk to the um, walk with the grandkids uh, without as much pain then that's the that stimulus may be significant enough but when it's uh, you know when it's a 100 kilo powerlifter with a lot of muscle tissue um, and a very heightened nervous system you need to think about this in context of what's going to give the greatest chance of success so finally we're moving on to uh, plantar fasciitis and um uh, this is the the final one, which is uh, going to be another female based. Now, the, this one is going down the rabbit hole a little bit because um, the, there's there's a lot of different factors here, a lot, um, and the whole foot size thing is is something that I've put in a lot of thought into recently. Um, which I'm not going to go into in this podcast, but basically everybody does get very focused on the length of their femur um, and say, oh, you know, I can't squat because I'm a femur length and so forth. And I personally think that it's not necessarily, well, the femur is a, a very important, but so is the tibia and so is the uh, and so is the length of the foot, the, the length of the metatarsals, the, you know, the size and shape of the, um, the midfoot and hindfoot bones uh, a huge, uh, play a huge role. And these can actually deviate more than you think in ways that have a a big impact on the way we move 
But this being said, um, because we're looking at females and because we're looking at plantar fasciitis, I want to give the most bang for your buck or the most important thing to go after with women who have foot pain. And yes, it is is very true that we need to train the feet. But if somebody's coming to you and they've seen a lot of people before and they've said, you know, some gave me insoles, some told me to do a lacrosse ball on the uh, on my foot, some people said to you know stretch my calves. Is like they are viable to an extent, uh, but we need to always address the body from the full mechanics. And because it's it's females we're talking out here the biggest thing you need to look into is postnatal and pregnancy so it can be pre or postnatal it's either or but postnatal women who suffer from, from plasha fantia, uh, fasciitis well, i can't talk just can't speak today at all um they really really need to focus on pelvic floor mechanics and this does not mean laying on the back and kegel exercises this is about their ability to be able to absorb force through the feet and uh, and utilize the glutes with uh, with breathing strategies and the reason for this is that the feet uh, when they become very very contracted it's a force absorption mechanism so essentially plantar fasciitis is because the fascia is doing too much work to absorb the force from the floor so if somebody goes for a walk in welly welly boots and they're very very rigid or they go on a night out in in high heels or they do something where there's um, unsustained or unaccustomed activity um, such as doing something not done before and they're wearing different types of uh, shoes or footwear uh, and they're doing it for a long period of time this can be the uh, the uh, straw that broke the camel's back when it comes to um when it comes to the plantar fasciitis issue now when this occurs obviously we do need to adjust the feet but it could be that there was an underlying pelvic floor problem which is what's triggered the whole process so if we're addressing this it's very important that we're learning how to use inhalation mechanics and force absorption to the right intensity and this is where doing glute work is incredibly important and aligning them with pelvic positions so they know how to contract the glutes both eccentrically and concentrically and this just basically means different levels of hip flexion which then can be correlated to a different phase of gait so then your exercise selection is really going to dictate that if you've got women doing very wide stance things such as sumo deadlifts or doing wide stance squats because it suits them better this can actually um, this can actually be inhibiting them because they're putting the pelvic floor into a very lengthened position whilst trying to create force which is uh, giving them the inability to actually properly absorb the um, absorb the force from the floor in the in optimal position the optimal position is going to depend on the client and their shape and their body type and the width of the hips and so forth but if you're just constantly getting them to create contractions through hinging movements and squat movements without focusing on breathing without focusing on slow eccentrics and being able to contract the floor in tandem with the weight that they're using this can cause a problem so for example if the if the client knows how to contract the pelvic floor and then they can do a squat whilst maintaining that pelvic floor contraction and they can pause and then push the ground away whilst maintaining the contraction and then contracting all the and contracting all the muscles around them such as the glute max quads and and, uh, and calves and so forth then we've got a movement pattern where they're utilizing all the systems if they don't do that so they're just basically you've got you've put 60 kilos on the back and you told them to squat as heavy as possible yes they will get added adaptations in the glutes but they're going to get those glutes uh, strong to an extent but without the integration of the pelvic floor mechanics and this can become dysfunctional because everything gets tightened and contracted they get tightness in the lower back tightness in the hamstring they do get some form of glute uh, development because the glutes have no other option to work but they uh, they miss and they override the uh, the pelvic floor mechanics they don't learn how to contract those at the same time and this becomes problematic for them in the long run so 
I think I said that all in one breath. I haven't actually had that much coffee today, and I did. It was uh, a while ago. But yeah, so there are three case studies for you to have a think about. Um, if you uh, have any counter questions to those, so anything where you're like, uh, you want to know more in terms of um, either a client that fits the bill with you or you have a client that you'd like me to feature, and obviously never name names, I'll just basically give them a rough overview of the problem they had, the age, the height, uh, and the body type, and the goals, uh, and then go in through it and give you an idea of a practical example of where you can uh, deal with it on the gym floor um, the apx website so anthropometrics website is going to be live in a couple of weeks um, i'm going to have loads of stuff on there if um, so you'll be able to get a downloadable pdf on um, compound movements uh, the apx youtube library is, library is getting updated on a weekly basis i think there's about 30 or 40 videos on there so if you haven't already make sure you get over to youtube and hit subscribe on there has got regular updates on all the content um, and stuff you can be doing at home to improve your movement quality. Apart from that, if you enjoy this podcast or you enjoy this episode, feel free to share it on social media as it helps get the word out. Um, and I just want to say a big thank you for listening and more content will be coming your way very, very soon. <laughs>